Welcome to the Joe Watt Podcast. I'm Joe Vendramini from the University of Florida Range Cattle Research and Education Center. And today our guest is Rick Moyer. Rick, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. Uh, Rick, I'd like to ask you please to talk a little bit about you. All right. So I was uh, raised in D-Land, Florida. Uh, went uh, to Daytona Beach Community College and went to the University of Florida. Graduated in 1992. Um, and from there I went to Deseret, worked there for uh, about four years. I uh, was a foreman of one of their units down in Kenansville. Uh, and then I, I met a girl, came up here and got married, <laughs> and uh, uh, started my life here. Uh, uh, when I first came up here, I'm, you know, there's not very many large ranches up here. And I love the atmosphere at Deseret, you know, and, but um, uh, so I I got three small places up here that me, they let me manage and spend my time in those three little places and uh, for me it was for them that they could pay you know smaller uh, wages and the combination was pretty good income for me so that's what I did and then um, as they started uh, uh, one one of my employers died another one got out of business and then Frank uh, Frank Strong had bought a couple of pieces of property where I'd worked on and. I developed a relationship with uh, the manager of this place at the time. Um, uh, whenever he he didn't know much about the area when he came here, and he'd ask me things and ask me to help him. If somebody else's cows got on this property, I'd, I'd get them off for him or whatever, I'd bail some hay for him, and just help him out in the jam or something. And then he asked me, you know, Frank decided he wanted to start running cattle with his horses, thoroughbred horses, and. Uh, which at the time wasn't, uh, most people still don't do that, even back then or now, but, um, and asked me if I was interested in coming to work for him. And, and uh, at the time, the place was about um, 30, uh, excuse me, about 5,000 acres. And he had about, he had 1,000 thoroughbreds on this place. And uh, he wanted to put as many cattle as he could and running with the horses with everything else we were doing. And at the time we were bailing about 120,000 square bales of, of bedding to bed those horses off this place, running a thousand horses. And so I had to figure out how many cows we could hold doing all that, taking all that grass away for hay. So it turned out about to be about a 350 head that we could run with the horses and, um, that's where I kind of where I thought it was going to stop for me. You know, we just that's what we were going to do. And uh, I managed the maintenance operation here as well uh, at the time, and uh, figured horses would just be the, the key business. And then in about 2010, when Frank uh, decided to get into the cattle business a little bigger, and, and he figured he wanted to do a grass fed operation and pasture to plate. And uh, working here, uh, things just developed. I mean, I don't think he had originally had a plan to build a, a slaughter facility. I don't think he originally had a plan to build his own restaurants and stores and put his own meat in there. Just things just developed. Um, so, uh, in about 2010, he started buying land, and now we're up to about 98,000 acres, mostly timberland, uh, and we've cut the timber and developed it into pasture. 
Um, and we haven't, we're not complete. We're about, uh, we've got about a little over 20,000 acres of pasture. We figure about 35 to 40% of our property, uh, we won't be able to develop. It's kind of swampy or it's got bay heads or whatever. And we, we do leave, we leave uh, some land for the wildlife as well. So um, when we, it's all said and done, we figure we'll have about 60% uh, of our land will be usable for cattle. Um, so then we've uh, just started filling it up with cattle. Um, so right now we're at about 3,500 mama cows and we're, we've got about 3,500 calves at any stage of their life from being born, they're being born right now, mm -hmm. to being harvested uh, and everything in between. So um, that's kind of where we're at and how it's developed in a, in a in short. Yeah, and Rick, having the grass-fed operation is something that is kind of unique here in Florida. It's not something that everybody does or even people don't know how to do it, right? It's a learning process because there is no re recipe for that thing. So um, with uh, keeping those animals and you have to go through from birth to slaughter, so on the genetics standpoint, how were the changes that you have been making to, in order to, to have a better product? Well, so first thing I want to say, we're always changing because this isn't, uh, I don't think anybody's got it figured out, uh, especially here in Florida. Mm -hmm. So when we first decided to do this, I had 30 or 40 different people telling me what we needed to do and everybody had a different suggestion. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was afraid that we would have to, um, change everything. And I started that process of getting smaller framed animals. Um, and that's, that's what I was the common theme with everybody says, you need a smaller animal, smaller animal, smaller animal. And prior to this, we tried, when we selected bulls and cattle, it was, we tried to keep it moderate anyway. Uh, we do have some larger cattle that we probably need to weed out. I mean, we'll always have some you have to weed out, but we, all in all, we were pretty moderate. Um, so I, I bought some smaller bulls and uh, started transitioning, making it, and getting those smaller animals. And when we started killing those calves, they're too small, too small. Uh, the big, one of the biggest challenges is we've got to have a cow-calf herd what we have to call our stalker operation. That's our grass fed operation. And we've got to satisfy that meat plant that, that we have. And from the meat, from the harvest facility side of things, uh, it costs just as much to kill a 900 pound animal as it does a 1300 pound animal. But you get a whole lot less meat off that 900 pounder. So, Balancing that and finding out, you know, getting those efficiencies squared away uh, had, uh, was a little bit of a challenge. Plus, on a lot of those smaller animals, the rib eyes are smaller, you know, and that's not too attractive to the customer either. So, working through all that process and having changed some of the herd and seeing those smaller animals and putting our original animals through the process, we're pretty, we found out we're pretty good where we were at anyway. Now, I still think we need to probably get our cow size down a little bit. Um, and as this thing developed, we did, um, 
we're in the stage now where we're pro trying to find our uh, maternal herd and developing our terminal herd. So, so we're in the process of uh, building our maternal herd and building our terminal herd. Um, so that's where we're at now. Um, but probably the biggest challenge is, is meeting the demands of the meat plant. I'd rather have a smaller animal. They'd rather have a bigger one. I see. And you and need you, to play in between. Yeah, because there's all there's so many things involved. There's there's uh, carcass size. There's meat quality. You know, it's easier to finish a smaller framed animal than it is a larger framed animal. You know, so even a moderate framed animal. So, um, and then you got to balance tenderness, marbling. You know, when you're selecting your bulls. And I'm not a guy that wants to go select for a single trait. Uh, if I'm going to move up in the carcass, I'm going to move it up across the board. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go just marbling. Mm -hmm. you, you, if we found out if we go for just marbling, that may be fine. You get some marbled animals, but you're going to, you're going to lose some efficiency somewhere else. So, um, this is a pretty big challenge. Okay. And if we go to your car, your cow herd right now, so we'll be a brangus type of cow. Yeah. So uh, we're pretty much brangus type. When we were putting this place together some of the ranches we some of the places we bought were existing ranches mm -hmm. and uh, they would have uh, for instance one had a, a Brown Hereford Angus rotation and I knew the cattle they've been managed by the same person for 50 years and they're great cattle and um, so you know you get all kinds of you know you're not spraying us at that point and uh, so we've still got some of those genetics and uh, so it's not it's not a hundred percent brangus, but we, you know, we have um, focused on uh, on the Angus side of things. You know, keeping Brahman in the herd. So mm -hmm. um, we, uh, you know, Todd Thrift, I believe, did a study years ago um, that compared quarter Brahman calves to purebred Angus calves. Mm -hmm. Have you read that study? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it said. Pretty sure it said that uh, if you have quarter or less brahman in your calves they're going to grade out just uh, as equal to um, mm -hmm. pure bitter. so we try to keep quarter or less in our calves that we're eating um, and so we do have some purebred brahmas we put on our heavy english cattle um, uh, and we'll we'll put uh, you know angus bulls on our heavy brahman type cattle we're experimenting now with some uh, f1 brangus bulls to keep on our heavier English cattle and then mm -hmm. hopefully to get to a point where we're breeding quarter types to quarter type. And we are experimenting with a couple of different breeds to add in some heterosis to that. Um, and, and Rick, what would be the age that you are slaughtering right now, average age? 22 months. 22 months of age. He's young. Yeah. He's an animal finish on pasture that is still very young. Yeah, it's yeah. 22. I, yeah, 22 months of age. We've and got some 24s. We've had, you know, we've had some, we've had 34 months back in the day. Right. Before our plant um, was ready to kill, they'd say, we'll be, we'll be ready at this date here. Uh -huh. They weren't ready, so we had, maybe grew them a little longer. Uh -huh. they, they take, they were pretty good animals. They were pretty good eating. And, and, and Rick, uh, with that challenge to supply the plant, so how are you dealing with your breeding season there? So we've tried quite a few things mm -hmm. and uh, right now and this is liable to change too um, I'd love to have one breeding season but we have that have that year-round supply so it, we've 
we have three 90 day breeding seasons. Um, we'll, we'll calve um, March, April, and May. Um, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May. Those, that's our calving season. And so don't mistake that with a nine month calving season. That's not what that is. We have our herds that in those 90 day windows. And so we can still select those cows and that are doing poorly and we'll get them out, you know, um, just like any other ranch would hopefully do. Uh, we tried the, we tried, if they didn't calve, if they didn't breed uh, for our fall herd, we'd flip them over to our winter herd and we put that got chaotic, super chaotic. And we figured we, at, in the beginning, we thought that would tell us that, it would tell us that bad cow right off the bat, the non-producer quickly. And it did, but to try to manage that and put her where she needed to be, it was, it was chaos. So we stuck to the 390 days seasons and that's what we're doing now. I'd like to shorten those up. We're not quite to the point where we can shorten them up. I'd like to get them to 60, mm. 60 days, but uh, it'd be pretty tough for us right now. So. And did those three breeding seasons really impact your personnel and labor that you need, or you, you think you, you are managing the same number of staff, just changing the management? Um, I think we have, we have more employees than most ranchers probably would because of several things, not just the breeding seasons, but, um, we're spread out over four different counties. Um, so, uh, but on each ranch, I think, I think we're, uh, I think we're pretty good where we need to be. We may have a couple extra employees, but we, uh, we, we try to get a, uh, a birth date. On most of these calves, not not exact birth date, but um, because of our, um, we want to know within 30 days when she was bred. At this point, um, at, there may come a time where we will still know within a 90-day period, um, and that'll be okay. But learning this, when when it's going to be finished, we want to know its age because most some of our customers don't want, uh, you know. Uh, calves killed after 30 months of age, right? right. So we want to make sure that we, we provide that and uh, we're getting better at it. I think uh, so tagging those calves uh, every 30 days adds a little extra labor. Um, and you know, we're, we've got, um, we're all, we're non-GMO, we're GAP4 rated, we're age of source verified. Um, there's a couple more in there, but we've run a lot of different programs and trying to keep up with that. We've got to have a couple extra employees just to help do that. So, I understand. So, Rick, we are going towards the end of our conversation here. I'll ask you three quick questions here. Um, if you have to select like two forage species for your operation here, which one will be? Just two forage species. <laughs> Well, if I could, if, well, I'd love perennial peanut. Uh -huh. Pretty expensive to do. Uh -huh. uh, and alfalfa. Well, we can't grow alfalfa, uh -huh. right? So, I mean, are you wanting what we can actually do here? Or, uh, we have actually planted some uh, perennial peanut, by uh -huh. the way. But uh, so, uh, my two favorite, I love perennial peanut. Mm -hmm. um, Alice Clover. Alice Clover is very unique to this. Um, 
environment here, and and you have uh, very different opinions from our previous because everybody will mention bahia grass first. Well, I don't want to say it's my favorite grass. Right. I wouldn't. I don't want to say it because it's. I mean, it's pretty poor grass. Right. You know, uh -huh. and I'll, my two are going to be bahia grass and Bermuda grass because right. that's what we can grow really, really good. Right. <laughs> but that's not the one that you like the most. <laughs> no, no. I mean, if you if you say what for grass fed operation right. now economical economics and everything mm -hmm. else, sure. Um, uh, bahia grass and Bermuda grass, and we we do a lot of oats. Yeah. You know, um, oats oat, oats good good grass. I don't know if I'm giving you the answer you need. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it's good to have a different perspective. So because you have this grass fed, I ask you about the forage. You thought about something better. Not what you have on a daily basis, but you thought about peanut because it may fit really well what you do, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're going to economically, it's it's hard to plant perennial mm -hmm. peanut for mm -hmm. any producer out there to plant perennial peanut to go in their business mm -hmm. um, to feed their cattle other than just sell it for hay. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's a favorite it's a favorite grass of mine. But um, mm -hmm. so and if you have to switch now to two two uh, cattle breeds. Two breeds that you like it. You need to, and a lot of people like more than two, but we need to narrow to two breeds. Well, I love the Brahmin breed, <laughs> and um, I'm just gonna have to say Brahmin Angus at this point. Yeah. But we're 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 experimenting a little bit with some Red Angus too. I'm hoping they turn out. Okay. And and Rick, when you are not working, what are the things that you like to do as a hobby? I love to hunt. Hunt. Hunt and spend time with my family. Hunt. <laughs> that, that's a pretty good one. So, Rick, I'd like to thank you very much for participating in the podcast. And I am Joe Vendramini. Joe what? <laughs>